Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Max Thomas. I'm your host. Thanks for checking out Upon This Rock today. Okay, we are continuing our series called the Inigo Montoyas. If you don't know what that means, you should go watch the movie The Princess Bride. You can get initiated into the into the cool club. Uh, but the Inigo Montoyas, these are words that you use, that I use, that the church commonly uses that I don't think they mean exactly what you think they mean when you use them. So words we commonly use that I don't think they mean what we think that they mean uh, in their their common use. And so in our first episode, uh, I did like an hour-long conversation with Brad Jerzak on hell, the word hell. And um, I think think that was a, a great conversation. And hopefully... I think at some point towards the end of that podcast, we said our, our, our goal here is just we need to find a, a better way, a more nuanced way, a more productive way to talk about hell. Um, but hell, the, uh, the conversation of hell is really, in a sense, a byproduct of a deeper conversation, and that's the one I want to have today, and that is the word wrath or the wrath of God. Because you don't get hell without a wrathful God. You don't get hell without an angry God who takes out that anger. I mean, hell, at least in the eternal conscious torment idea, um, which I I do think is a wrong idea, uh, but in that idea, you don't get hell unless, what, what that idea says about hell, put it this way, what that idea says about hell is hell is the eternal state of being under the wrath of God. That's what we mean by hell, most people, is that you are eternally under the wrath of an angry God who is punishing you for your sin in perpetuity, forever, in agony, and all of the graphic imagery that that comes with that. And so I want to, we started with that conversation about hell, and now I want to go a little bit, uh, level kind of underneath. I want to talk about wrath, the wrath of God. So this should be fun. Uh, let's let's hop into it. He didn't fall. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So when I say the wrath of God, or just the word wrath. What I think most people typically think when we think about the wrath of God is that the wrath of God is uh, the active work of God in terms of his anger or in terms of vengeance or punishment. Uh, Usually this is carried out in some act of of violence, a plague, something like that. We'll, We'll talk about that here in actually just a minute. But these are... The wrath of God is is God's uh, active, but it's somehow kind of mysteriously supernatural because we, He's working through a lot of times through human things. Other times, it just seems to be plainly supernatural. Um, but this is God's active work in the world, in which He is reaching down in His anger, in His vengeance, in His punishment, using some kind of means of violence. This picture is not perfect, and I understand that. It's a little bit 
crude, and I understand that, um, but it, I think it gets close to the point. It's, it's like God is Zeus from Greek mythology. He's sitting up in heaven with his thunderbolt. If you've seen those pictures of, of Zeus, he's got the thunderbolt in his hand, and he's looking down on the earth, and he sees some wicked nation or wicked people or wicked person, and he hurls his thunderbolt, his lightning bolt down at that person, and that is the act of the, the, the act of the wrath of God. And it's something like that, and it it's mysterious, um, but it, it for I think most people, at least when they read the scriptures, it seems to be pretty obvious and pretty plain. And then when we bring that idea into our own real life, and this is part of the 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 disconnect, I think, when we bring it into our own real life, it gets a lot more complicated. So people are really quick to read the scriptures and say, this is the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God. Look exactly what God does here. He kills this person, kills that person, acts out in this way, acts out in this way. And then you try and transfer that into our real world. And it gets a lot more complicated. Did God cause that hurricane? Did he, was the tsunami the wrath of God? Was Katrina, you had people back in 2005, Katrina was God's wrath and judgment on the city of New Orleans for all of its wickedness. The tsunami in 2004, 2006, I can't remember, it was right around Katrina, you know, that killed a quarter of a million people uh, in, in, um, off the coast of uh, Thailand and in Asia there, in the, uh, the Philippines and Indonesia. And was that the wrath of God upon you know, largely Muslim Buddhist area, what it gets a lot trickier. And you get some people who say, yeah, absolutely. That, that is, you had people in nine 11 after nine 11 saying that that was the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God on America for turning away from God, whatever. But it get, my point is it gets a lot more complicated and a lot harder to discern in real life. But in scripture, uh, we seem to think that it's, it's abundantly, abundantly clear. And, how we think about those two things or how we see those two things playing out are, I think, for most people, different. God is actively killing people in the Old Testament or in, you could just say, in the scriptures in general. Uh, and then in our own real life, it, it gets just a lot hazier. And so, but the idea here is most people think of wrath as God's active mysteriously supernatural anger, vengeance, punishment, usually carried out through some means of violence upon the wicked or upon sinners, whether that's a person or a nation. And and a lot of people will orient God's wrath around um, an idea of holiness that, you know, God is so holy that he must punish sin because he hates it so much and because it violates his nature, because it, it's contrary to who he is. And the goal of this conversation is not to talk about how wrath is related to God's holiness, because then we have to get into a whole conversation of what we mean by, by holiness. It's simply to say that God's wrath is viewed as, his, as uh, his anger put into action, you put it that way. Again, usually through some means of of violence. And so when we think about the wrath of God, what stories, when I say that, 
um, the wrath of God, what stories come to your mind? Um, I think some popular ones would be the flood, the flood of Noah, the, the plagues of Egypt, um, Sodom and Gomorrah. You could go farther into the Old Testament and talk about the exile. There are, are other plagues, supernatural things that break out against Israel. Uh, some people may think of the sacrificial system, in uh, primarily in Leviticus, where um, is, is the wrath of God being appeased. Uh, some people will go to the cross. I had a whole episode um, one of the first two or three episodes, I think, of the podcast um, talking about that, but this very much touches on that. How you view the wrath of God um, really does play into how you view the cross, and, and those two things feed off each other, and we'll actually get to that conversation again um, later on in um, when, we, when we talk about the wrath, and Jesus actually picks up on a phrase used by Jeremiah to talk about the wrath of God, and Jesus um, uses it and, and says it. And so when we understand how Jeremiah is using that language, we can actually get a glimpse into how, how does the death of Jesus on the cross relate to the wrath of God, and how are those two things in, um, in relationship to each other? How are they connected to each other? Uh, and then and again, hell. Um, when we talk about the wrath of God, a lot of people will just jump straight to the lake of fire, you know, some image in, in Revelation um, or in, in Luke where, you know, Lazarus, the, the, not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but who's uh, seen in hell that is how it's often told, you know, begging for water on his tongue. And so there's all these stories that evoke... Um, the image or the idea of the wrath of God uh, in the scripture. And, and we're actually going to talk about, I want to talk about a number of those. Best place to start, and this is true, just Bible study tip here. And hopefully you've picked this up even through some of our previous episodes. Uh, the, I think the best place to start is, is asking the question, okay, where does God's wrath, his anger, where does that first appear in the Bible? So if I were to ask you, just off the top of your head, as you're listening to this, driving your car, doing the laundry, whatever it is that you're doing, when is the first mention of God's anger and wrath in the Bible? You can just pause it here quick and think about it if you need to, but when, when, is, the first act, when is the first mention of it? I think most people would be surprised. It is not until Genesis 32 with the story of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. So let's pause and think about this for a second. God's anger and wrath are not mentioned in Genesis at all. You can read the whole book of Genesis and you will not find an explicit, overt mention of God's wrath. The word is simply not used. All of the words and the variation of the words in the Old Testament that are used to talk about God's anger, his wrath, his, his hot, fierce uh, emotion. Uh, the, the word literally, and we'll talk about this more later, is literally a, his 
the uh, his hot nose is the, it's kind of a Hebrew idiom. It talks about his anger. Um, none of those are used of God in the book of Genesis. Other people get angry. Those words are used in Genesis of other people, but they are not of God. So let's think about some of the stories that just occur in Genesis. Uh, the Garden of Eden, when sin is introduced in the world. Again, let's pause and think about this. When sin is introduced into the world, there is no mention of God getting angry. He does not break out in wrath. In fact, if we read the story carefully, he says, if you eat of the tree uh, of the fruit of this tree, you will die. They eat of the tree. Do they die? No, they don't die. What does God do? He kills an animal and clothes their nakedness and covers them clear. I think we can read back and see that that's pointing us to, to Jesus and the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, covering our nakedness, covering our sin um, as the, the Passover lamb. And he's, his action towards them is one of mercy. He says, listen, if you stay here and you eat of the tree of life, you're going to stay in this state forever. And so I need to, to exile you. Uh, so that you can actually uh, come back, and we can make we can make this work. So his action is actually one of of mercy. So we don't find anger and wrath in the Garden of Eden. We don't find it in Cain and Abel. Again, Cain kills Abel. God comes down. Abel's blood is crying out, and he marks Cain. He actually puts a mark on his forehead and to show him mercy, so that other people don't do the same thing. It's not in, and this is a surprising one to a lot of people, I think. It was to me when I first realized it. It's not in the flood story. Noah, nowhere in the story of Noah, in, in Noah's flood, is God angry. In fact, the, the narrator goes out of his way to explicitly tell us the emotion that God is feeling in that story. He is sorrowful. He's sorry that he made humans. He feels bad because of the violence that has overtaken them and corrupted the whole earth. Now, I will say this as an aside, that story, the flood story, does later on gets picked up as a kind of framework in which we can think about the wrath of God. But it is important to note that the wrath of God is not mentioned in that story and in fact, it's not because no emotion is mentioned. A different emotion is mentioned. So it's, it's, it, the flood is not a story about God getting angry at the wickedness of humans and wanting to start over. It's not a story of him seeing the wickedness of humans and him lashing out in, in wrath and in anger and punishing them for their sins. That's not what it is. He is sorrowful because of what they have become, and he therefore, and he takes a certain action, and we'll, actually, we'll talk about that in the future as well. So we won't get into that around. My point now is just to, to point out that nowhere in Genesis, how about Sodom and Gomorrah? Again, maybe one of the, what, three, four, five most famous stories of God's wrath that, that we would think about. I mean, fire and brimstone raining down from heaven, However you want to think about that, some people think, um, some people read that as in that area, it, it says that there was tar pits, and so maybe it was lightning um, striking these hot tar pits in which they would start on fire 
and that's how the city burned down. However you want to to think about that and, and read that, either way, uh, is there's nowhere in there that God is mentioned as being angry and wrathful. In fact, again, the narrator is very uh, explicit in what is going on there in the heart and in the mind of God. It simply says that a cry came up before the Lord, and that's a hyperlink back to the Cain and Abel story where Abel's blood was crying out. It's also, if you go forward to the people of Israel when they're in Egypt in bondage, it says that their cry came up before the Lord. So it's this this cry of injustice that those who have been who are suffering are crying to the Lord and he hears them. And so this he he hears that their sin is great and it says that God has come down to see their great sin. This is again a, a hyperlink both to Babel and back to the Garden of Eden when it says that God came down. But nowhere in there is God angry. It does say that their sin is great, that God uh, has come to, to punish their sin by overthrowing the city. And the sin mentioned, um, we're told over and over in the prophets, um, I'm thinking specifically of, of Jeremiah, he says this explicitly, that it was they didn't care for the poor and the widows. So this is the sin, the, the cry of the widows and the poor is coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah, and God hears their cry, and he comes down. But we know the story, there's more to that story as well. God begins to speak to Abraham, and he goes, you know, begins to, to basically intercede as this righteous intercessor, saying, would you destroy the wicked and the righteous together? Surely not, because that's not who you are. So would you spare the city for 45, for 40, for 35, for 30? For And he gets them all the way down. And the story, he just, it, it kind of inexplicitly stops. The story is told in a way that as a reader, you expect him just to keep, keep going. So nowhere in Genesis, okay, well, we get to Exodus. In none of the 10 plagues of Egypt is God said to be angry or wrathful not even in the death of the of the firstborn in the tenth plague it's the angel of death passes over the destroyer exodus 12 passes over god is actually not the active agent there he's in a passive role it clearly says and and both the writer of hebrews and paul in first corinthians 10 pick up on this that it's the destroyer who passes over and it's god who is actually protecting people from death. And again, we'll unfold, we'll look at some of these stories again when we come to actually define wrath. My, my point right now is just to get us thinking about the way and the stories in which God's wrath is used because I think one of the ways that, again, we're talking about words that we often use that I don't think they mean what we think that they mean. One of the ways that this word gets misused is we read it into stories that are not there. We read Noah's flood as if it's a story of God getting angry. We read Sodom and Gomorrah as if it's a story of God getting angry and and lashing out in his wrath. We read the plagues of Egypt as God pouring out his, his wrath and his anger on Egypt. And 
we just need to be careful students and actually read those stories and see what is said. Now, in some cases, later biblical writers will reference back to that story, and maybe they will use anger or wrath. And we can have that conversation then in that context, but it is important to make the distinction when the story is being told, how is the story being told in the moment? And then we can deal with the prophet or priest or whoever it is that is saying saying whatever. Um, and, and that's just an important distinction because we don't want to read certain things into the story prematurely that, that aren't there. We want to allow the Bible to tell the story on its own terms. And when we get to the part of the story that is giving commentary on something that has already happened, then we can, we can have that, that conversation. So it doesn't show up until Genesis 32. The, the word, the phrase, the idea of God getting angry. Now, small caveat. It does say in Exodus 4 that God gets angry at Moses, but there's no intention. He has no intention of doing anything. There's no, he doesn't make any claim about, I'm going to therefore do this. It just says that he's mad because Moses doesn't want to go. Um, so I'm, I'm taking that one out because it's, the word is technically used, but the idea of, of wrath being poured out is not what is being spoken about there. So the, the first time that that word is used of God, uh, his anger in related to him actually doing something, him actually uh, taking some kind of wrathful action is not until Exodus 32. And that is the story of, of the golden calf. And so remember, they've come out, they've come to the mountain. The ten plagues have happened. They've come, they've come through the sea. They've come to the mountain. God has come down in Exodus 19 He's met with the people, made a covenant with them. Then in, in uh, the following chapters, he begins to give them the law, the Ten Commandments, and all that and all that follows. And then God tells Moses uh, to leave the mountain because something is happening down below. He's been up there for 40 days, and something is happening down below in the camp, and Moses goes down, and it says that he hears a cry and he thinks it's the cry of war, but it's the cry of singing and dancing and basically a, a big party. And he sees that the people have gathered together their gold and they have thrown it into the fire and melted it and turned it into a golden calf. And they're calling this golden calf Yahweh. And the Lord, knowing all of this as he's speaking to Moses up on the mountain, he says, this is Exodus 32.10, now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So this is the first time that God essentially makes a threat of uh, wrathful action in his anger, and it's against his own people. Now, what does this uh, what does this declaration say? One it says, "Leave me alone. Let me let me do this." And in that is kind of this invitation where Moses can choose to not leave God alone. 
uh, is kind of implied there, and that's actually what he what he does is he pleads with the Lord and actually says, "Why would you let your your wrath burn hot, your anger burn hot, and bringing these people out here just to destroy them? You don't want to make a a mockery of your name, and so everybody thinks that you just brought these people out here to kill them. Don't do this. You'll you don't want to do this. These are your people." And so it says that uh, the Lord relented and he basically listened to Moses. And here's, I think, just basic takeaway. The first time that God's anger and wrath are mentioned in the Bible in relation to him uh, getting angry so that he wants to do something against someone. He invites someone to pray and intercede for mercy, and then he listens, and he does not do anything. And we just have to recognize that fact, that the first time God gets angry to do something, he actually relents to show mercy. Now, if we keep reading the story, Moses goes down, confronts the people. He actually grinds up the tablets of stone, throws them in the, uh, uh, grinds up the tablets of stone in the golden calf and, uh, or he throws the tablets of stone, grinds up the golden calf, puts it in water, makes everybody drink it. And then he, Exodus 33 is this really unique story. He takes his tent, it says, and he goes way outside the camp. He leaves everybody and it's, it repeats it two or three times that he goes far outside of the camp. And he sets up camp, and he calls his tent, his own tent now, he calls the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And he meets with God there face to face. And this is where we get that famous line that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he begins to speak. God begins to speak with Moses and Moses pleads with him, Lord, show me, show me your glory. I want to see you. And so he says, okay, do this. Uh, tomorrow, go up onto the mountain, cut two new tablets of stone, and I'll give you a new law um, because you guys are going to leave this place, but I'm, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, no, 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 no don't do that. Uh, come with us. And he says, okay, come up on the mountain, cut two new tablets of stone, and and essentially we'll talk about it. And I will show you my glory, because he asked you asked to show me, uh, you asked to, to see my glory. And so Moses goes up and he goes up on the mountain with his tablets of stone, and God relents again and says, Okay, I'll come with you. I'll come with you. I won't leave you alone. And then he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And this is one of the most important passages in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. It says that the Lord descended on a cloud. This is Exodus 34. And he proclaimed his name to Moses. And he said this, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in goodness, in truth, or faithfulness. He keeps mercy for thousands, and he forgives the iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, and even to the third and the fourth generation. So let's just trace the story. Moses is on the mountain receiving the word of the Lord, the, the, the law, the tablets. The people commit idolatry, which is already breaking one of them, uh, breaking the Ten Commandments. And God, it says, for the first time gets angry and wants to lash out in wrath because uh, of their sin and their wickedness. Moses prays and God relents and shows mercy. Moses comes down from the mountain and takes the tent of meeting far away from the people outside of the camp, away from everybody, and he begins to meet with the Lord there. Then he he goes up back on the mountain a second time with two new tablets of stone, asks to see God's glory, and the Lord passes by him and proclaims his name, and he says these five things. He gives Moses a five-part uh, um, uh, description of who he is. He is, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in loyal love, and he's abounding in truth or faithfulness, depending on how you translate that. But the middle one, I want you to say it's it's five, and the middle one, uh, which in, in Hebrew poetics, in kind of the structure in which uh, a large portion of the Hebrew Bible is written, and how the basics of poetry and, and a lot of the narrative uh, is built, the structure, the, the middle description of something is uh, not the most important, but it's a highlighted one. And so here in this story, because it's coming off of the golden calf, God is puts in the middle when he's declaring his name that he is slow to anger. And so then how, the question is, okay, well then how does this play out? Well, he shows mercy to thousands, but he does punish every generation that continues in the ways of the previous. Now, to the third and fourth. Now, a common way that this is read is that God punishes children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren for the sin of their forefathers. So your dad does something and you have to pay the price. This is not what God is saying here. And later on in the prophets, Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel, God explicitly actually says, I am not the God who punishes you for the sins of your forefathers. I don't work that way because that's unjust. That's I punish everyone according to their sin. So what this is saying here is every generation that continues in the sin of their forefathers, every generation that continues in the sin of their forefathers, they too will be punished. And we get this line in Kings and in Chronicles over and over and over again when uh, the writer is describing a king. It will say something like, and this king was wicked. He continued in the ways of his father. He continued. He didn't tear down the idols. He continued in the wicked ways of some ex-king. So that's just what he's saying here is that it's, is every generation that continues in the sin of the previous ones, they too will have to pay uh, uh, pay the price for for that sin. But the highlight here, the the centerpiece here, is that God is 
slow to anger. And so what is Moses's response when he hears this? Well, he prays that God would have mercy and that he would now be among his people. Now, remember, Moses at this point is meeting with God far away from the people. And now when Moses hears that God is slow to anger and that God will, he just told them he will come come with them. He says, well, then dwell among us, in the midst of us. Be in the middle of us is the word. And so he, he invites God, because God is merciful, back into the middle. And it's not because these people are perfect. He says, even though these people are stiff-necked, even though these people are sinful, you can dwell in the midst of us because you're slow to anger. So now here again is one of, I think, the misconceptions when we talk about the word wrath. Uh, we, t- we think about the word wrath or God's anger or wrath as not being able to be close to sin because God will lash out at it. But here's, this is the exact opposite is happening here. Moses finds out, actually, yes, you do punish sin. You do visit the third and fourth generation, but you are merciful, kind, gracious, and slow to anger. And therefore, you can come, even though these are a stiff-necked people, you can come into the midst of them. So all of this to say that the foundational story of God's wrath in the Hebrew Bible is one in which he repeatedly shows mercy and he re- he reiterates those actions by declaring his name of being slow to anger to Moses. So this is a I wanted to focus on this story up front, and then actually we'll talk more explicitly, okay, well then how do we actually define God's wrath? That will be our next episode, my next episode. But this this story is so important because every future prophet, priest, biblical writer that wants to, that is interacting with God's wrath and his anger in their day, they will look back at this story and they will reference it in some way. Usually they will reference uh, God's declaration that you are the one who said that you're slow to anger, that you're uh, abounding in grace and mercy and truth and faithfulness and loyal love, and you're the one who's slow to anger. Uh, this, is, this is the story that becomes the paradigm for how, how the biblical authors and the prophets and the writers think about God's wrath. And how they interact with it is they take it very seriously, but they they uh, stake their, their tent peg, so to speak, in the ground in the fact that he is slow to anger and slow to wrath, that he is patient and long-suffering, your translation might say. And so we'll hit the, the pause button on the conversation here, and next time we get back together, we'll look at, well, then how should we actually talk about God's wrath? How can we define it? And what are some of the other images that the biblical writers use to try and describe it? And so that'll be the next time that we're together. And until then, have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon.